Well, welcome again, everyone. Welcome, everyone, online. Uh, as we continue this Lenten sermon series where we walk through the Passion story, according to the Gospel of John, and uh, each week looking at a little uh, closer and closer to the crucifixion as we go. Today's a lot more on the trial, trial if you could call it that. Um, but uh, before I get too deep into that, I want to take us back a little bit. Um, the other day, uh, I was out driving. You know, I go out on hikes a lot of times when I get a day off. And we were driving through Tombstone. Because you head anywhere down towards Bisbee, the shortest way is to go through Tombstone. And I've always thought kind of one of the cool things of living down here is that you can just get in your car and go down to Tombstone. Uh, and you can just say, hey, kids, let's go to Tombstone. And you can see the OK Corral. Um, or you could see the place on the street right next to the OK Corral where the shootout actually happened. Um, but uh, you go down there, and it's always kind of a kind of cool place. You know, you've seen it in the movies, and uh, you can see the reenactors all over the place. Uh, and I always, although I always get kind of a weird mixed feeling uh, whenever I go there, because you know when you get down into it, what Tombstone was really about, uh, and like everything was like drinking, prostitution, and people dying. That's like, that's like all it's about. You know what I mean? What do you do? You go on the street. Like, oh, yeah, this one shot. This, they, you know, they shot three people here. And then you can go to the cemetery, right? You walk around the cemetery. And I'll admit it's kind of cool. Uh, you know, and you can see the graves where the three Clanton brothers, uh, the, you can literally see the spot where they're buried. Uh, and then you can get that little brochure that'll give you a guide to all the people who died. And so we end up doing kind of our morbid family tour of the cemetery where it's like, how did this guy die? Well, let's see. Uh, he got shot. How did this guy die? Um, let's see. He got into a fight. He got shot. How did this one die? Strychnine poisoning. I'm like, wow. How did this one die? Fell off a wagon and got crushed. And it's like nobody in Tombstone ever lived to die of natural age. Everyone either was shot, poisoned, or died in some sort of horse-related accident. Um, Although I would be surprised in Tombstone if some of those accidents were not really accidents. But I was like, man, you know, technically the economy was about silver. But, you know, the real business is to be the, the dealer in poison. That guy seemed to be the one who made all the real bucks in Tombstone. But that's kind of what it is, right? You get, and you go out there and, you, can, you know, you can see the shootout, place where it was. And, uh, uh, and you know, you can look around and kind of get this sense of, it give you a little bit more sense of what the old Wild West was about. You get to see the place where they filmed all those movies. And, uh, and of course, it spun a whole genre off from that of uh, millions and millions of Wild West movies. And they don't produce as many of them anymore. Go back to the 60s, boy, there's millions of those Wild West movies. And they all kind of had a familiar sort of uh, general, what do you call it, a, a, a theme, a storyline. You know, the town's got, it, there's the town, there's bad guys in the, there's the good town, and then the bad guys go into the good town, and then the good guy comes to stop the bad guys, and then they're shooting all over the place, and the bad guys lose. And they make the tombstone story of Wyatt Earp versus the Clantons to look like one of those good guy, bad guy stories. But if you actually dig into it, you find out that it was not quite that simple. Um, you learn that, yes, the Clanton family was big into cattle rustling, and they were stealing, and there was probably murdering going on. They, they were not particularly nice people. Uh, they did all sorts of bad things. 
But the Earps, when you actually dig into it, they were not these sort of good-hearted angels who sort of descended from heaven to bring the common good. Uh, there was a whole layers of politics going on, jockeying between the two different political parties that they were members of. And the parties were jockeying to get control of Tombstone so they could get more control of the territory. And, but you realize what a boring movie that would be, you know, if you're sh sit showing them sitting in the back room and, you know, there's Wyatt Earp talking to Doc Holliday and he's like, well, I don't know, Doc. I think if we can get 13 more percentage points in Precinct 3 with more voter turnout, we can increase the Federalist Party's dominance in the next midterm elections. What do you think, Doc? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I, we, definitely, <laughs> we definitely can increase our party's uh, voter registration drive that we're going to set up <laughs> at the saloon. That would be like the boringest, that'd be the boringest movie ever, right? Everyone would be asleep. What do we want to see? We want, <laughs> right? We want good guys and bad guys. We want good guys in badges and bad guys wrestling horses, and, and, uh, and that's how it goes. And, and the way it's set up, of course, is they always make the bad guy out to be so incredibly bad that by the time he dies, you don't feel bad for him. They've kind of almost lost their humanity. You know? And so when you see him get shot, you don't go, oh, man, what a tragic loss of a soul that could have been redeemed. You go, yeah, put the Clintons in the grave. You know? And, and nobody sheds a tear. And that's, that's kind of how Hollywood sets up their movies. There's bad guys. When bad guys go down, you don't feel bad for it. I mean, I don't think anybody sat there at the end of Endgame. I'm going to give a spoiler here, so plug your ears if you don't know how the Avengers series ends. But I don't think anybody got to the end and watched Thanos hold up his hand and watch it fade into the dust and went, Oh, no, Thanos will not be redeemed. I bet he had a bad childhood. No, it's like you just watch him go. Or the, the metally liquidy terminatory guy gets dumped into the you know, pot of boiling metal. You don't go, oh, man, the technology that could have been used for civilian purposes there. You just cheer. A good guy beats the bad guy, and you, and you end up watching it, and you feel satisfied. I blame Hollywood to some extent for sort of giving us this, kind of, I, I think, kind of simplified version the somewhat untrue version of how the world works, of how people work. Because in the real world, things just aren't as simple as somebody's all good or all bad. We can you know, all have mixed motives and all have mixed intentions. We can be good one day and bad the next, or we can try to do good and accomplish bad and vice versa. Uh, you know, people are mixed. And, and sometimes we do horrible things because we're just stuck in a bad situation and that's the best we can do. I mean, think of this situation, you know. I was thinking to myself, okay, if I was in a place, some hypothetical place where me and the family were starving. I just can't get work, can't get anything from the food bank. It's been days without food. We're starving and some rich guy walks by with a bag of gold coins. I, I, I will openly admit, I wouldn't feel all that bad about just pushing him over, grabbing a few, and running. I would be committing a crime. I would be violating the law. But if my choice is take some gold from a guy who doesn't need it, or my children starve, hmm, that make me a bad guy? Should, should I be shot? And am I a bad guy who should be run out of, run out of town? Or, or am I a good guy just in a bad situation? 
I, I, don't, I don't think any of us would sit and look at our kids starving and go, you know, but he does have property rights. I mean, I want food. I don't know. It, it gets messy, right? The real world gets messy. I, I know I've talked about that priest in L.A., that Jesuit priest in East L.A. inherited this. It basically was assigned to this church right in the middle of gangland in the middle of the 90s, shootings all over. Uh, I was listening to him on a podcast. He said he'd done 220 funerals for kids. Um, and uh, so, but he also has this ministry, and he gets a lot of these guys out of gangs. And the person interviewing was asking, why do these guys get into gangs? And the priest said, well, I know the prevailing wisdom is kind of that, you know, they're, they're just, they don't have a good father figure, and so they're looking for role models, and, you know, the gang offers them easy money, and he goes, that's some of it, but he says, what you're really dealing with is people who are very, very wounded. And he said he has this, some sort of test that he had that had 10 categories of trauma. There were 10 different major life traumas that a person could go through. And he didn't elaborate on the specifics of this test, but he said, you know, a normal middle class person has maybe one or two. He said he, was, he did this with all the guys in his program, every one of them that he tested, without exception, was at least a seven. Seven serious lifetime traumas they'd had before 17, 18. And he says that, that, that sort of the image that they're just trying to do this for fast money and, 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 and street cred and stuff, these are really, really wounded people who are really in need of help. So they go and they join these gangs. Well, do they do horrible things in the gangs? Yes. But are they bad guys? Or are, you know, sh should we cheer when they get shot? When a, when a kid in a gang gets shot, should we cheer and go, yeah, bad guy's down? Or should we say, dang, there was a soul who didn't get the help he needed and could have been saved? Or are we both? Martin Luther used to say, that we are both saint and sinner. We're both saint and sinner. We, we, we may be justified in the eyes of God through faith. We may believe us. We, we know we are loved by God. We may try our best to follow God. But no matter what, there is still a part of us, as long as we are in this world, that has a desire to sin, toward selfishness, toward self-centeredness. And so he said, at the same time, we are both sinner and saint. And we hold them in us. And he had an interesting analogy that he, he talked about in daily living. And it, it kind of reminds me of what AA says about, he, he said you would wake up every day and start anew, and, and he would use medieval language, crucify the old Adam within. And you know, that's how I always start my day. I lean over and I hit the phone and I'm like, oh, good Lord, time to crucify the Adam again. But the idea was, that, you know, you don't just get saved and boom, I'm perfect now. You know, that, 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 we live in the, that we live with both within ourselves. And he didn't use good guy, bad guy language. It wasn't that sort of Manichaean or dualistic. And, it, and the, he said that was part of how it goes. And it's part of what you, you need to know when you look at Jesus' arrest and trial, which is what we're going through. Uh, when you look at this trial, if you can call it a trial, is that throughout Christian history, we've been trying to figure out who the bad guy is in the story. Who's the bad guy? We know who the good guy is. 
Jesus is the good guy. Well, who's the bad guy? Who's the villain? Who's the irredeemably bad monster who gets his due at the end? And the problem with the story is there is no one person that seems to be an absolute monster. There's, you know, you can go through all the different characters in the story. And I think that's part of what the, why the gospel writers include this in such detail, is for us to get the sense of this. You know, who do you have? You have the priests, right? The priests have problems with his teachings. They have problems with his popularities. They worry about the effect his teachings would have on the priesthood. They also worry that maybe Jesus might start a riot. His mob would get out of control. Rome might crush him. The priesthood would die. The temple would go. It was not a bad worry. Forty years after Jesus, that's exactly what would happen. But they were worried about this, right? Were they being selfish? Yeah. Did they, did they know they were trying to convict an innocent man? It certainly seems that way. But they also, they had things to think about. Protecting the city from getting destroyed is not an unworthy goal. And then, of course, you have the mob. The mob that's sitting there and they're chanting and chanting. You know, why is the mob mad at him? The mob's mad because he didn't start a riot. That's what they wanted. They're sitting there going, dang, Jesus, we brought you in on Palm Sunday. You were the king. You were supposed to overthrow Caesar, and now you're just sitting there letting him beat you up? Some, Caesar, some, some king you are. They were gypped and betrayed, so they're mad. But they're also very angry because they've been horribly abused. Then, of course, you have King Herod. He just says, do a miracle or I'll just send you back and just send him back. Herod doesn't come across very good. And Pilate, whereas Pilate's the guy who has to sign the final order. He has to, he, he has to sign off on the execution. He has the final say. And he's got a job. And his job is two things, pretty simple. Keep the taxes flowing to Rome and prevent a riot. And so he's got decisions to make here. Right? If he let, he's got Jesus in front of him. If he lets Jesus go, and then Jesus does go out and start a riot and try to start a revolution, now Pilate's the guy who let the rioter go. Well, that's not going to end well for his career. And, uh, he, and then, of course, you have Jesus. But on the other hand, if uh, he kills Jesus and his followers think he's a martyr, now that could start a riot too. And if Jesus did say he was king, even if Pilate thinks he's just some up north country crackpot guy, if Rome hears that a guy who said he was king got released, well, that's career ending too for Pilate. So how do you finagle this? How do you thread this needle? How do you keep Rome happy, shut the priests up, calm down the mob, save your job? Well, there's not an easy answer here. You want to keep the power, you got to get your hands dirty. And the writer of the Gospel of John in particular seems to, when you read through the different passion stories in, in the four Gospels, John seems to paint Pilate in the most sympathetic light. He makes Pilate seem like he really recognizes how innocent Jesus is and just is torn by those, those dirty priests and that ugly mob. And the other Gospel writers don't let Pilate off quite so easy. And uh, so in John, Pilate gets a little bit better treatment. But you got to remember, you know, Pilate was, he was not a nice guy. He killed people all the time. 
He wasn't some morally virtuous person. He'd sign off on crucifixions every day. He'd kill thousands of people in a day if he thought it was necessary. He didn't have moral qualms with killing. And so killing another fake king and getting on with life is probably what was in his head, even if he knew that Jesus was innocent. You know, Jesus, in a sense, has gotten himself caught up in the middle of a system of power with all these political factions, and they all have their interests, and they're all protecting their positions. And then there's this one innocent person who steps in the middle of it and who's messing with the status quo. This isn't really about good guys and bad guys. It's a good guy and a lot of people doing their jobs and trying to protect themselves. And you miss that if you go through and you're looking for some sort of Dr. Evil, you know, sitting there stroking his hairless cat, going, I want to find a guy who teaches love and kill him. You're not going to find that. Right? You're not going to find that. That's not reality. In reality, we are saints and sinners. It's just Jesus is the only non-sinner in the group. And he's showing us in his actions, in his death, the real truth of it all, which is that the powers of this world are not fair and just, and they will kill to stay in power. And the kingdom that Jesus is promoting, the vision he's offering, this is a vision not of powers jockeying against each other perpetually, but a vision of a world where his followers give up the need for power and take the servant role, like he did. Because there's no way to work your way up that ladder without getting your hands dirty. But that's a hard call, right? It's a high bar, you know, to be so loving that you're willing to give up power when you could have it. And we don't do it because, of course, we see where it leads. But I look at Jesus' trial and I see some hope. Hope that we can remember what Jesus was trying to show in his death, that the path of following a loving God does not involve judging people as bad guys and taking up the sword and executing them in a way of judgment that only God really has the authorization to do, but of a different path. And one final note. Uh, one thing Hollywood does, too, uh, that bugs me. It's always easy to pick on Hollywood. I know. I love their stuff, and I pick on them at the same time. They are sinner and saint. Uh, but one, one thing they do, too, in a lot of these movies is they tend to depict the world as kind of generally happy and at peace. And, and, and things are nice, the flowers are blooming and everything, and then in comes the bad guy, who for some reason nobody can quite understand, uh, comes in and then he messes with this nice order, this good order. And, uh, and then he goes in and he ruins it and does bad things to mess with the good order of things. And then the good guy comes in, and what is the good guy's job? The good guy's job is to restore that order. And you'll see at the end of the movie often, they'll, they'll literally, like, you know, they'll put the flowers back blooming again, and they'll turn the sunlight on, the audio department will edit in some more bird sounds at the end. And you'll see the good guy ride off into the sunset, and order is restored. And that, that whole sort of that, that whole sort of pattern, that plot line, it kind of bugs me because it sort of implies that the world is fundamentally good and there's just a few oddballs who mess with it. 
instead of understanding that the world has got sin built into it, baked into its operating system. Right? I mean, what world have you ever lived in where everything's at perfect harmony naturally? Where when there's a problem, everybody just gets together and sits down and everyone gives and everyone compromises and everyone, you know, and just says, oh, that's right, you know, I'll take a little bit less so you can have what you need and we'll all just get along kumbaya. What world is that? What world have you ever lived in where you can climb the ladder of success and never have to make a decision that's going to be in any way hurtful to someone else? This seems to only work in a world where nobody wants power and nobody's craving it. And I've never lived in that world. But, it, 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 but in that, that is a world that Jesus would call the kingdom of God. That's that kingdom of God. So what if the opposite, the opposite of the kingdom of God is closer to reality? That the world is more full of powerful people jockeying against each other, taking advantage of each other, and everyone's kind of tied into it, and we're all sort of a part of it. And the one person who tries not to abide by the rules of that is the one person who ends up throwing a wrench in it all, and he's the one person who isn't corrupt. Where the one everyone calls the bad guy is actually the one who's the good guy, who won't play by the unfair rules and take the bribes and take advantage of the poor and execute the innocent. Now that would be a different kind of movie. That would be a Jesus movie. And that would be an awesome movie. Amen.